Uh, first, let me just say thank you all for coming. Um, we are we are new to doing these Saturday seminars. This is our second, um, and and so we're still kind of trying to figure out the rhythm of it, as well as um, as well as kind of develop a reputation for doing something great. Um, but anyways, we appreciate you coming out. Um, I wanted to do three things here to get us started this morning. Uh, the first is I want to explain um, why, why we're doing this, where this is coming from. Uh, I wanted to pray for the day, and, and then I wanted to share some of my perspective um, on these things. And so, for starters, uh, the reason why this is of interest to me personally um, it comes down to effectively the fact that in my study of church history, I realized that for most of the Western world's history, the church had been the greatest benefactor of the arts. You can't really look behind any classical painter or sculptor um, and not find either the church commissioning it or making sure that it was preserved. Um, and about, about the transformation that happened in the modern arts age, things started to really diverge very strongly. And that's not just merely from transitions that happened in the art world, but also in the church world. Um, and it kind of culminated, especially in, um, in a debate that, that was probably best represented with, with the fundamentalist movement. And so there was this sense that basically um, truth was merely propositional, meaning it was logical statements, one following another, um, that uh, things needed to be tightened up and shored up. The boundaries became very high walls uh, for what was and wasn't Christian, what was and wasn't. Um, and then on top of that, the ideas of, of ministry and all of these things started to narrow. And so, um, so effectively, the church no longer respected the arts except when it was comprehensible, uh, lowest common denominator, relatively palatable, um, and useful for just the, the bare-bone purpose of evangelism, to tell people about Jesus. And so what happened then, culturally, apart from anyone who was making these decisions or thinking these thoughts, broadly, culturally, is it really reduced down the way that we thought as Christians about art. art and e I found even artists... Um, who are Christians, would rub up against this, feel frustration, and yet still not have any sort of solid foundation to build their identity on. And so they would be frustrated that, um, that the church only saw art as basically a means of propaganda, um, but when you talk to them about God's role in their life and in their art, they didn't have any other answers. They felt the same shame that frustrated them, effectively. Um, in, in the past few decades, there's been a lot of good um, thinking in this way. There's been a lot of things moving, um, but there's still a good deal of work to be done. And then there's this other part for me, okay? So not only um, do I know many artists who are Christians, but I also know plenty of Christians who are constantly engaging with the arts. And that's not necessarily an active or a proactive thing, it's just a part of our reality as human beings. And so I was reading a book on preaching by a guy named H. Grady Davis. 
and he was talking specifically about holiday sermons, about the sermons that come around Easter and Christmas. And he was talking about how the stories of Christmas, the birth of Jesus and Easter, his death and resurrection, are so profound on their own and so simple and yet so moving that preachers have a hard time doing anything with them. And so what they, ha- what they usually do is they take that story and they either narrow it down to a single principle, so it's like their usual preaching, um, or, they, um, or they break the story down into logical points and they run the stories of Jesus through the filter of propositional thinking, of logic. And he was saying that's despite two facts. One, the fact that the majority of our thinking is shaped by stories everywhere else. And so, uh, so people watch their television and they read books and these things are constantly shaping our culture and yet we're feeling like that's not enough. We need to propositionalize. We need to make this logical. We need to exposit this text instead of telling the story. And then he said, second, the other thing that's striking is that in the first century of the church, Christianity spread like wildfire solely on the communication of these stories. Before the New Testament was, uh, you know, finalized, before Paul had sent his letters, the churches were planted on the back of just the story of what Jesus had done. And so he just said, I believe that we greatly undervalue the power of story. And I think that can be broadened out to the fact that we greatly undervalue the power of art. And so that's kind of where I'd like to start this morning. But before, before we do, um, let me do two more things. One, here's the structure today. We have a couple of speakers. Uh, Sam Vance is joining us as well as Colleen Bratton. And so they'll be sharing with us throughout the day. Um, we'll have lunch after both of them share. And then we'll do a little bit of a Q&A. So if you have any questions throughout the day, feel free to keep track of them and write them down. Second, let's pray. God, one of your apostles says that every give, uh, good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And so we want to recognize this good and perfect gift. We want to understand how it plays out in our lives, in the lives of our friends, whether we have artistic ability or not. Um, we engage with the arts, whether, whether in our church we are an artist or not, we are to support, to build up, to encourage, to edify one another, and so these things matter to us. And even if, uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, my prayer for you, Father, I ask that for those, um, that they would see how deeply rooted our understanding of creativity and arts, communication and expression is rooted in your character, that it's uh, something we rejoice in as an act of worship and praise. I just pray that you would be present and that you would enlighten us uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last weekend I was watching uh, Moana, the Disney film, with my kids. And as I often am, now that I'm a parent of five kids, I was pretty moved. I usually am. Watching movies for me is a very emotional experience. Um, and Disney and Pixar, they know how to play those strings, you know. Um, but at the same time as I was moved and I was resonating with the film, I was also tremendously frustrated. And the reason I was frustrated is because the general theme, purpose, storyline of the film was the same story we've been telling as a culture 
over and over on repeat for at least a decade. Uh, it, it, was, it was Frozen, it was B-movie, it was all of these themes which was basically just um, don't allow anything around you to restrain you, follow your inner truth, and, and not only will you find satisfaction, but you'll save the world. And like I said, that story to some degree resonates with me. I don't want to lay our entire culture on the couch and psychoanalyze it, um, but we have some insecurity issues as a culture. We have some fears, and these movies directly recognize that there's things inside of us that we want to believe in and are afraid to do so, and that's fine. But it's also become, if not the only, one of the primary stories that we tell. And so I was frustrated um, by this fact. And so um, I'll get back to that in a moment, but that's kind of what prompted um, my thinking this morning. What I actually wanted to do was point to one of the few places in the Bible Um, where an artist is mentioned by name. And then I want to talk about why he's there, why he exists in this passage at all. And so this is in the book of Exodus. And what's happened is God has called this people Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them out into the wilderness, and he's beginning to structure what life will be like for Israel in the years to come. And so that comes with a revelation of himself. He's constantly pointing back and saying, for your identity, remember that I brought you out of Egypt. He roots their identity in what God has done for them. He also gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. He starts to shape how their society is going to work and to run. And one of the aspects of that is how Israel is to worship. God makes relatively clear that not all worship, by definition, just because it's tangential tangentially pointed towards God is um, acceptable. But because God is a particular type of God, that worshiping him has to reflect that. Because the human condition is a particular condition that worship has to reflect that. And so there's a priesthood, and there's the holiness code, and the kosher laws. There's a sacrificial system. And at the heart of this is the tabernacle. At the heart of this is the place where people will come to encounter, to interact with, to worship God. And so in the midst of this, God lays out relatively rigidly plans. In fact, repeated in the section on the tabernacle over and over again is according to the plan which I have shown you. And once the whole thing is laid out, the the text pivots to the making of the tabernacle, repeats the entire story over again with a repeated refrain as, as they were instructed to, okay? And so this is according to the plan, this tabernacle that God has built. But in the midst of giving all of these instructions, we get to chapter 31, and this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood to work in every craft, and behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ashimach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So what's striking about this is a couple of things. I, I just want you to think with me for a second about how different this could have, done, could have been. One of the ways that it talks in this story about according to the plan is that the plan is heavenly. 
In other words, the tabernacle is representative of some reality that's closer to the presence of God. It's striking then that what God doesn't do is just download this reality onto earth directly, right? He doesn't just drop a tabernacle from the sky, custom fit and built to his standards. The other thing that's not uh, what takes the case uh, t- takes place here is he doesn't um, take Moses as the leader and give him such rigid and explicit instructions. And all just an aside, the the instructions are relatively rigid. I mean, they're incredibly detailed. But he doesn't tell us on the fabric how many cherubs there should be per square foot. He doesn't tell us what a cherub looks like or what a pomegranate looks like. There's all sorts of artistic detail that is left out of this. And so instead of um, an Ikea-style assemble at home with full instructions tabernacle, it says here that he takes two men in particular that he has called, that he has built for the task, that he has empowered with his spirit to do these things. Okay, And so the tabernacle then is intentionally artistic. It's intentionally, uh, and in, in the most human sense of the word, like maybe we could have started this conversation by just recognizing the fact that God is creative. We are created in the image of God as human beings, so we are creative. We could talk, for example, about what J.R. Tolkien said, that when we use our imagination, we become sub-creators, and it's built into that DNA. The fact that we in our mind can create a world reflects the fact that we are part of a created world. But this is more than that. This is God intentionally leaning into and valuing, endorsing, and asking for a human expression of creativity. He's given the ability, he's given his spirit, he's called them by name, but they are to do it. I'll give you another example. In the middle of our Bibles, we have the Psalms. The Psalms acted as basically uh, Israel's primary hymn book. It was where their prayers corporately and individually, their songs corporate and individually came from. And it can be interesting reading the Psalms as a portion of Scripture because they're so tremendously human. In fact, sometimes this modern preaching culture that I mentioned earlier doesn't know what to do with the Psalms because they're not always happy. They don't always have resolve. Some of the Psalms are by definition an expression of struggle and of doubt, and they don't always get to the other side of the hill. Psalm 88 ends with this phrase, and darkness is my only friend. You watch as human beings in the Psalms wrestle emotionally with who God is and struggle through their current circumstances, grasp for where he's at. And yet, when we get to the New Testament, it constantly says that the Psalms are God speaking. Just think about that for a second. That the Psalms is effectively God communicating through the emotions and understanding of men. Poetically, on top of that. And so here we have these two men who are called for this reason, but what I want you to recognize here, finally and fully, is that the tabernacle needs to be, and it needs to be like this. God recognizes that if he merely gives his people the law, if he merely explains uh, and exposits who he is verbally, that there's something missing. And so he builds this beautiful tabernacle, this living lesson, this according to the pattern as it is in heaven, because it shows something 
that needs to be shown. All I'm trying to point out with this is the fact that, um, that Israel needed a tabernacle. They needed it. God built it into their worship so that there would be something that was tangible, visible, beautiful. Uh, and that in some way, just base instructions, just verbal communication line by line wasn't enough. This, I think, is what, what art does best. Art makes visible reality. Take the Impressionist painters. In the day of the Impressionists, there was a very standardized school of art in Paris. Its aesthetics and its principles and its purpose were relatively rigid. But the Impressionists came along, they changed their techniques Uh, And they did something that didn't seem like the super realism of the painter of their days, um, using small strokes and, um, uh, and these types of things. But what they brought out was something that was missing. They didn't create a false reality. They said, no, you're missing how light actually works. Your paintings are in one sense true to life. In another sense, they're absolutely false because light is, is fluid. And light does these things that you can't capture in your way. And so what they were really doing was pointing out a forgotten aspect of reality. It's interesting to me that when Nathan the prophet is tasked with going to King David to confront him in a, in a heinous act of sin, okay, David has seen a woman bathing, taken her, slept with her, knowing that she's married and finding out that she's pregnant, conspiratorially put her husband to death to cover up the pregnancy. And as far as David's concerned, he and you know his sworn to secrecy, secret service, are the only ones who will ever know. And God speaks to Nathan, this prophet, and says, you need to go confront King David, almighty, all-powerful King David, King David who is incredibly strong and sometimes violent. You need to go confront him in his sin. And it's striking to me that when Nathan comes, he says, David, I'd like to tell you a story. He tells him a story about a man whose only property, whose only thing that he owns, whose only friend is a sheep. And his neighbor, who's wealthy, has much property, much friends, many sheep, has guests coming over for dinner, and he sneaks into his poor neighbor's house, steals his only sheep, and kills it to feed his guests. Before David can even help himself, he jumps out of his throne, and he says, I tell you the truth, that man will die. And Nathan says, David, you're the man. I think that's very illustrative of something that only art can do. If I walk up and I confront you with the truth, whatever it is, the nature, the nature of sin, the nature of the human condition as the Bible understands it, involves a tremendous uh, blindness and that blindness is effectively rooted in rebellion. Paul says it this way in Romans, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so when the truth is right in front of our face, we explain it away, we excuse it, we combatively shift the perspective to remind people that we're not the only sinner in the room. We do whatever we can except for swallowing that reality. What Nathan does is he effectively takes a detour, makes the truth and gets the emotional response that David should feel about this act. It's something to be angry about without going through the blindness of his personal involvement. That's something only the arts can do. That's something only story can do. It helps us to get at truth through the side door. It gets around our front door of defenses where we've walled against reality as it stands 
by going through the window and we recognize it and we see it for what it is before we recognize that this is a hostile takeover. It's sometimes said that art imitates life. I can't think of a less expressive statement. That, that just reduces art down to an incredibly realistic diorama, but it spoils the whole point of what art is. Art shows reality for sure, but it shows almost by definition forgotten or neglected reality. That's what makes it valuable. Even a photograph is only valuable as a photograph if it reveals, not just if it uh, remembers. The Bible, by the way, is full of this. Israel doesn't just need a tabernacle when things go south, when they're far from God, when they're wandering and moving towards other idolatrous worship, when they're ethically going off the cliff. God sends prophets. And those prophets continuously speak for God with profound authority. Thus says the Lord. But when you read the prophets, what do you find? You find poetry and song. You find performance art directed by God. Isaiah, I want you to, or Jeremiah, I want you to walk around just in your underwear for 40 days. I want you to lay on your side for 40 days and then roll over and lay on your other side. I want you to take this stick, declare what it is, break it in half. You find these things over and over again. And even in their communication. Have you ever noticed how often it says in the prophets, and the prophet saw the word of the Lord. It's such a weird phrase, you've probably never noticed it, but it's continuous. Most of what they had to say came in visions and dreams, in pictures, illustrations, metaphor, and imagery. Later, when Jesus is doing his ministry and he teaches as one having authority as known, none had ever known, despite, you know, contrary to the culture of Israel in his day, he uses parables. And I want you to recognize that the parables of Jesus this morning have profoundly changed the world we live in, not just the church. How many institutions, because of the Good Samaritan, have become Good Samaritans? We're not just taking that label to anchor it in our traditions, it's an inspiration. It's a picture, it's a story. So art doesn't just imitate life, it, it reveals reality. I think that's something that, that art does in a way um, that we, we encounter. And a lot of times, it reveals it in a way that's not even novel. It's like art confirms something we always knew and were afraid to believe. J.R.R. Tolkien again. He says that the value of fairy tales is that they provide the possibility for everything in the world going right. He calls it the eucatastrophe. He has to make up an entirely new word. It's this fact that all of the sudden, despite all evidence to the contrary, joy is suddenly shown, right? Everything is resolved. And he says the reason we tell those stories is not merely escape, but because we have this innate sense that that's the only way the world could be. That there must be meaning, and for meaning there must be consummation. We see injustice in the world and we say, this world doesn't make sense unless there's a right to the wrongs. In the words of Samwise Gamgee, if, unless every sad thing becomes untrue. And fairy tales is an expression of this that we forget. The book of Revelation. 
Here's the context for that book. I know it can be foreign and difficult and distant. I know that we generally think of it as being about things still to come, but recognize and remember that it was written to seven particular churches in the first century of Turkey. And here's the circumstances. Here's the why behind the book of Revelation. Eleven of the twelve living apostles and the apostle Paul have all been put to death by the empire. The Roman... uh, the Roman authorities, Caesar Nero, um, and the Caesar right after him, have begun to extensively seek to eradicate the church. John is the last living apostle. His church is in a time of tremendous persecution, and they're wondering if the church is going to survive, if their family is going to survive. They're wondering what this means for the truth of Christianity. I thought Jesus was the Messiah. I thought there was life. I thought there was all these things. And even John, he's not present. He's been exiled by the emperor to the Isle of Patmos. So Revelation is this letter he writes to the church. And effectively, this is what it is. It's the circumstances that they're in pressed to their fullest with the veil pulled back. In fact, that's what the phrase Revelation means. It means to unveil, to pull back. And so what they see is the end game of everything they're going through which may be way far off in the distance, but is still relevant to them because it's very different than the story they live. The story they live is one of defeat and despair. The story of Revelation is one of undefeatable victory. Right? And once again, when he does this, he doesn't just write them a letter. He doesn't just exhort them to remember and to stay the course. He paints them a picture. In fact, if you read the opening of the book of Revelation, it's specifically referred to as a book. The reason I point that out is because it's not just a vision and a prophecy that's been passed on. It is intensely and intentionally literature. And it is full of the same literary constructs that we find in other forms of literature to convey its point. Okay? All apocalyptic literature was by definition literature, but effectively what it was was telling a different story, connecting their lives to a different meta-narrative than the one that was around them, which was defeat and destruction. See, here's, here's where I want to finish today. It's not just that art imitates life or even reveals what's hidden in life, what's forgotten in life. Art shapes reality. It does. It always does. And this is something that I think is not always conscious. But the book of Revelation is intentionally trying to shape the lives of the Christian community through a telling, through a narrative, through a picture. Not just saying, hey, Jesus is going to come back, but on a white horse with a sword. And right there's imagery involved. Not just, hey, hold out until heaven, but heaven is painted, right? It's displayed. And surprise, surprise, like most works of art, it's difficult to understand. And some people want to avoid it just because of that difficulty. In Neil Gaiman's epic comic book series, The Sandman, there's an episode where a cat is gathering up all the cats in this particular community, and he explains to them, he says, there was a time when cats were the biggest animal on earth. And humans were our slaves. We lived 
in joy and pleasure and peace and the humans took care of all of our needs, but then some of the humans began to dream that they, that they were the ones and that we were merely pets. And they dreamed this so often until one day we woke up and that was reality. And so he's calling all the cats of the world, he's touring like a preacher to cats to call them to dream again. Neil Gaiman understands the way that art works, that it doesn't just reflect or remind, but it shapes. Interpreters, in all sense, not just biblical, but all interpreters talk about the hermeneutical circle, which is basically this fact that you never step into something neutral. You are who you are as a reader when you step through and you bring that identity into what you read, but then the circle completes and what you read reforms and shapes that identity, okay? So here's, here's why I was frustrated by Moana, and here's my challenge. Here's what I, I want to see from those who know Jesus as Savior, who, from those who recognize the God of the Bible. We gotta tell new stories. We have to point to the forgotten truths. The church has a tremendous privilege in this that I don't think we always recognize. G.K. Chesterton, who was an essayist, journalist, author, poet, um, uh, leading up to World War II effectively, right through World War I. He says that the modern culture imagines the future as being just like them, only more so. That's just the way we think about the future. We take who we are and we project it and we just press it to its limits. And he says, he says that, by the way, is never the way the future runs. He says, but the church has the advantage of being prepared for tomorrow's questions and not just running on the energy of today. The story of follow your dreams, the story of find your inner truth, that story is in some sense just a projection of what our culture already believes, but it's also a reinforcement of that reality. It's such a strong culture now that old stories that told different stories, we hijack, we strip of their meaning, and we tell to fit our stories. Just look at, go read Grimm's fairy tales and then watch Disney films. We're very good at sending a message through art, um, but, but remember that ability that art has. Art has the ability, even at the broadest cultural levels, to confront a culture with the truth. Remind them of things they already know. Get around their blind spots and therefore shape life as we know it. The church has a role in that. Preaching has a role in that. The way we live individually as Christians in our daily life has a role in that. But on so many occasions in the history that we read about in the Bible, artists have a role in that as well. They see what other people have forgotten. In C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, two artists are talking in heaven. One is a resident of heaven, the other is a resident of hell. And the resident of hell is, has arrived as a tour of heaven, and he's told that he can stay if he wants to, but he can't get over his great desire to paint heaven. And it becomes very ironic because he ends up walking away because he values the painting more than the place. And in the midst of it, I think, is one of C.S. Lewis's most insightful statements. He says that all artists, all poets, all writers are drawn away from their first love, the love of the thing told for the love of the telling. 
He says, your art on earth was valued because you saw glimpses of the heavenly reality. And when other people loved your art, they saw that glimpse too. But it doesn't stop there. Human beings live on purpose, live on hope. We set a trajectory. We, we shape a horizon and then we walk towards it. And the art in a unique and in a, in a special way paints the future. And it doesn't just guess. It follows the course. It's acorn to oak tree. But it develops it in such a way that we pursue it. Think of science fiction. Science fiction doesn't just fantasize about the future. It shapes it. Kids grow up reading science fiction and then they have these already preformed ideas of where to look. Why do we spend so much time exploring outer space? Because we've been dreaming about it for so long. Why do we take rocket ships and not, you know, submarines to space? It's because rockets were this innate early science fiction idea and it's taken shape until scientists went, now how would this actually be in real life? But it's the same culturally. It's the same ethically. Right now we're in a time of great sexual and relational confusion. The old world knew plenty of that. Nothing like Ecclesiastes says is new under the sun. But what is the way the Bible went about expressing the centrality, the importance of the, uh, of the marriage relationship? It's the Song of Solomon. It's a book so contextualized and so poetic it's almost unreadable to us today because the metaphors don't stick. We read that her teeth are like a flock of goats and that doesn't really do it for us, right? But, but instead of just a constant reiteration of the facts, instead of some sort of dragnet, dragnet interview, right? There's this poem. There's this epic of romantic love that reminds the world, yeah, there's probably small bits of truth in the stories that you're telling, in the aspirations you make, but there's a greater truth and a deeper truth, and a more satisfying truth. You've taken the minors and forgotten the majors. And it's something, it's something that God has uniquely gifted mankind to do through the arts, to speak into existence. 